my name is Justin the Clue. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Spike Lee. And he probably would not be happy with us having this discussion because we're just two middle class white guys. We're very well aware of this. Sure. All right, so let's jump in. Spike Lee. Why is he so angry? <laughs> As most of the people who aren't cinephiles would probably say, because everyone knows who Spike Lee is. Yes. He's the guy that's vocal, that's furious about the way things are going. And that, why does he have to be so difficult? He's on TV a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, As, you know, for his whole career, he was saying things like, black people can't be racist, Mm -hmm. uh, which are exactly the kind of comments that tend to get white people riled up. Because they're true. He is the guy that is known as the black director. Like, if you asked anybody, can you name me one black director? They'd go, oh, yeah, Spike Lee. Yes, that's true. Because, you know, even though he has this career that's very vast and he's done, you know, he's made the 25th hour. He's made Old Boy. He's made lots of... (laughs) The Old Boy remake. Yeah, he's made lots of different kinds of movies. But, like, I can't think of another director who is also, like, kind of more that has dealt with race as often and as head on as he has. And when he was in his heyday around stuff like... She's Gotta Have It, uh, his first film, School Days, Do the Right Thing, all the films that would come out around the early 90s and beyond. This idea of a filmmaker going like, the world is racist, angered people, because they're like, no, it's not. Everything is fine. Well, you know, famously Do the Right Thing, uh, not nominated for Best Picture the year that Driving Miss Daisy won. And as Spike Lee said, that did more damage Driving Miss Daisy uh, winning than him just not getting nominated at all. (laughs) Because it's it's cataloging and rewarding this story that's like, you know, racism, good thing we got beyond it. Yeah, yeah. And Do the Right Thing, classic movie. I don't think we have much more to add that hasn't been covered in a million different places. We did discuss it on the Ernest Dickerson podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a movie where just everything is firing on all cylinders. Uh, it, it's like a perfect slow build. The way that it evokes this neighborhood as this living place, the way it evokes just a hot day, it's many stylistic experiments and the way they all cohere in a way that I think most Spike Lee movies don't absolutely cohere. But I think that Do the Right Thing is still the perfect example of what a Spike Lee movie is, which is something not very concerned with plot. It's concerned with mood and character. It loves the idea of playing with style. Like Spike Lee, out of probably most of the big directors, other than Steven Soderbergh, who famously won over uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing with Sex, Lives, and Videotape, which even Steven Soderbergh at the time said, that's ridiculous. (laughs) Spike Lee is a guy that just, he pushes style as far as it can go. And a lot of the times it's like what are you doing like it just doesn't work i know what you're thinking you're thinking of in crooklyn I, that's exactly what i'm thinking of in that one reel where the kids uh, get sent to i think a foster home mm-hmm. and there's 20 minutes where it's it's an anamorphic yeah it's an anamorphic squish usually when you shoot on anamorphic it squishes the image and when you process it you kind of stretch it out to get that widescreen image but if you don't do that you get a really ugly looking thing that spike lee decided to keep in the movie because by his own words, he wanted it to feel very constrained and claustrophobic. 
but instead what it feels like is wrong and well, in it feels like way, somebody fucked up the projector yeah it makes you aware that you're watching a movie and you feel that something is mm-hmm. incorrect about it that style that takes you out of the movie in a way that i don't think spike lee intended but at the same time he's always playing with camera moves color yeah. the way that he's filming stock and stuff like that he's always breaking the fourth wall mm-hmm. uh, and he's somebody who has kind of developed his own film language you know he can make a movie like malcolm x that's uh, influenced by the work of david lean and is very slick and polished and hollywood looking he can make commercials which is how he makes a good portion of his living yeah I think. music videos as well he's a director uh, that can push things really far but he's also one that yeah. he doesn't mind like selling yeah. his talents to make a little bit of money but it seems that in his most personal movies he's interested in creating his own style not only through you know the obvious things like that shot that's in all of his movies of somebody standing on like a conveyor belt as the you know, the world moves behind them while they're not moving. You know, that signature Spike Lee shot. Yeah. Also, his use of music, mm-hmm. the way that oftentimes... It, it will... overpowers the frame. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you watch something like even She Hate Me or even uh, Black Klansman that just came mm-hmm. out because they both share the same composer, there's this orchestral lush music that will just smother the frame, almost as if creating a contrast between what you're seeing and what the music is telling you to feel. And revisiting Spike Lee's movies this week, I realized that so much of them kind of fly in the face of what I would normally classify as a well-made movie. Mm-hmm. You know, they are uh, wildly didactic, uh, rambly, overlong, uh, overlong. Uh, you know, all the, all the kind of weird technical decisions, which are so. I don't know if Brechtian is the right word, but uh, they, they sure, sure, why not? They, they 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 stick out like a sore thumb, and oftentimes you look at these technical decisions and say, "Well, this was a decision. Why did he do it?" Mm-hmm. Whether you agree with it or not, I I, yeah. I think that's what's always interesting about Spike. You know, because we're friends, I yes, can call him Sp- Spike, Spike. I guess, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Lee, uh, is that. He's a filmmaker that, like, he's very rarely sold out in his feature film projects. Like, even after Do the Right Thing, he made Mo' Better Blues, which is an autobiographical portrait of his father's life. Mm -hmm. Instead of making something that is obvious and that he's like, oh, I'm trying to, like, raise myself up after Do the Right Thing Mm -hmm. to do something even better, he just digs down and makes something personal. Like, even, like, the David Leanness of Malcolm X... That is in the service of a biopic that should have never been made by a major studio. Right. Like, it's only someone with the power that Spike Lee has that he could make this, like, three-hour-plus epic that stars Denzel Washington about this figure that is often looked down upon by the kind of, like, white leaders, a.k.a. the leaders of the world. Yeah, and the idea to make it in that style Mm -hmm. was a very conscious provocation to say that, yes, Malcolm X is a figure in world history deserving of a David Lean-style treatment. And at the same time, he still can deliver, like, audience-pleasing stuff. Mm. But, you know, we talked a bit about Inside Man this week, and that's a movie that it's kind of weirdly miraculous because it has all of the Spike Lee stuff in it. It has all of his strange, stylistic Like, the opening quirks. credits over New York are accompanied to the music from a Bollywood movie that came out a few years before. And it has, you know, strange, discursive moments where, you know, people talk about, in rather heavy-handed ways social issues of the day uh, and yet it's you know an absolutely crowd-pleasing film I, i'm not quite sure what the alchemy is on a movie like that I, I don't know like i watched it again today and it didn't hit me as much as i think it hit people when it came out even though that i was impressed by the kind of like 
decompression he brings to the heist film. Like the heist ends with like 25 minutes of the movie to go. Yeah. And there's a kind of unrolling of it. And at the same time, he also uses time shifting in the film Mm -hmm. to create kind of dramatic little check marks as you go along. And that's very impressive. While at the same time, he's doing the kind of show offy film school shit that like bros are like oh yeah that's awesome did you see how long that shot lasted yeah and this is why spike lee is one of those directors like oliver stone like uh, his arch nemesis quentin tarantino who mm. off you know <laughs> star of girl six that's right <laughs> who young uh, filmmakers often or young film fans often gravitate towards and call one of their favorites mm-hmm. but I, maybe the alchemy is that in a movie like inside man like it's such a like it's it's such a conventional movie in so many ways it's it's got kind of a uh, a standard story and it's got some big star performances in it um, and it's paced so well that like the crazy stuff around it well like the crazy stuff comes in and it's like just a fun jolt yeah exactly you know? uh, it's almost working at that level that someone with nothing to say like Guy Ritchie mm-hmm. the way that like he got people's film style like hearts up with like oh look at all this crazy stuff while Spike Lee is doing that but he's also doing it in service of these kind of ideas that he just wants to throw right in the audience's face. Yeah, and and that's it too. Like his his crazy um maybe one could say gimmicky uh, flourishes often have an idea behind them even if the execution is not so great. So we both watched Get on the Bus this week, which is a movie that came out in 1996 and was about a group of African Americans who are traveling by bus to Washington DC for the Million Man March. And this is a film that is rarely mentioned in Spike Lee's filmography. We're consciously going a little obscure on this Mm -hmm. episode because Spike Lee has this sprawling filmography and, you know, everyone sort of agrees on what the high points of it are. But there are all these just strange detours. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he has such an oddly shaped career jumping back and forth from studios to independent films to self-financed films. Yeah, I just he's just like chasing the things that he's passionate about. But and also the things that he's able to make, you know, increasingly in his interviews in the last few years, you'll hear him always saying that it's a tough business. Mhm. Yeah. I mean like the fact that he had to crowdfund um The Sweet Blood of Jesus a film that is no one's favorite, but he needed to make, which was a remake mm-hmm. of Ganja and Hess, mm-hmm. shows that he's a filmmaker who still like needs to make movies, right? Because mm-hmm. when you've been such a like master as he has for so long, it would have been easy to go like, eh, I'm just going to make an old boy every year. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't. And that's kind of amazing about him. But there are very few directors who have a career like his where he can make something like Old Boy, which, yeah. as misbegotten as it might have been, was a major Hollywood movie, and then make The Sweet Blood of Jesus and make Red Hook Summer and then come back a couple years later with Chirac and this this new one, Black Klansman, which yeah. is like doing so well. The fact that he can just do all this stuff. You never feel that like Spike Lee is like, well... I gotta do one for them and then one for me. If you look at his filmography in the 90s, it's just like one for him every time. And it's just a strange career of like, you know, there are peaks and valleys, but there's no kind of like, there's no one arc to it. No, you know? it's all over the place. Yeah. Again, it's like what he was passionate about. I actually read the diary that he kept when he made uh, She's Gotta Have It. An amazing thing about Spike Lee is that his early movies, up until I think Malcolm X, all have diary books that were uh, released with them. So it's like his thoughts, his feelings while these movies were being made. And she's got to have it. You see this picture of a guy who's like, I just want to make one movie a year. That's all I want to do. I just want to go and be able to follow 
like whatever's exciting me and just deliver it. And he's successfully been able to do that every single year that he's been a professional filmmaker. I've read his Malcolm X book, actually, mm-hmm. which is interesting because like that was such a troubled production with him, you know, struggling with the budget every step of the way and, you know, fighting to be able to direct it instead of Norman Jewison. Oh, and, my God. Uh, eventually having to basically crowdfund completion funds from wealthy black celebrities like um i don't know like michael jordan and bill cosby and other yeah people and that was time. in a film as well that people were like whistling on the street to like keep them from being able to like get a good on-set audio oh yeah like he was being threatened by farrakhan yes, <laughs> when he, he made was. that film which is interesting because get on the bus is about a bunch of uh men going to the million man march farrakhan convention mm-hmm. this is a film that i was hoping that it'd be even like more in your face than it is because i thought it was actually pretty conventional in its structure it was pretty conventional but also again so much of this movie sort of flies in the face of what i associate with being like a slick well-made movie well it's a film that's a lot of it is shot on like mini dv (laughs) yeah he's always doing weird things like that like shifting back and forth between 35 millimeter and mini dv and Mm. you see it in this movie and you kind of think why Mm mm-hmm I mean, it looks neat. Yes. I- I'm sure he could probably explain it to us, but a- as viewers, I'm just like, what? Like, why are you doing this? Because it does feel like it's all just thrown in there. Yeah. And I mean, this film tackles so much stuff, like the role of a father and son, um, the place of a gay couple within the context of the black community. Yeah. Uh, you know, why would a black person be a Republican? Yes. Uh, it- it's like... Pretty much every issue facing the black community circa 1995 is addressed in this movie. And, you know, it follows maybe 12 or 13 people on this bus as they have these very um, didactic, Mm -hmm. rather contrived conversations with each other. It's like kind of one confrontation after another, Mm -hmm. you know, where they they're like Socratic dialogues almost. (laughs) Yes. But I got to respect Spike Lee for taking that kind of approach with this stuff. Because as we said at the beginning, like, who is the one black director that you know? It's Spike Lee. Mm-hmm. So he could either be just an anonymous person making movies, or he could be confronting this stuff head on and just yeah. throwing it in your face. Well, like, Get on the Bus didn't happen this way by accident. No. Like, it's, it's not a... It's not a naturalistic movie, but it's not intended to be a naturalistic movie. It's it's are like, any Spike Lee's intended to be naturalistic films? <laughs> no, like like it's a movie that's actually about like saying these things mm-hmm. um, and how important it is to actually acknowledge these things that you yeah. just live. Uh, from day to day yeah. ignoring I found it kind of a dated movie yes I mean there are there are ways in which you know obviously many of these issues are evergreen but so much of it just felt like you know but like did it feel dated stuff. when it came out when like I, I this don't stuff so. was important yeah, yeah I don't think yeah. it did either and Spike Lee has always been a director that it feels like he's working in the moment yeah like his movies are meant to be watched now yeah. and to be experienced and discussed now and if you look back on them they look a little bit like time capsules because he does push things so far like even Get on the Bus has these crazy moments of over the top like someone gets tossed out of the bus in slow motion yeah. and like Spike Lee almost never feels like he thinks like maybe I shouldn't have this over the top she's yeah. like oh yeah let's just go into it and yeah it's a movie with so many topical references like oj is brought up yes so many times well i mean if we're talking about movies that are topical that spike lee made that weren't popular when they were released and don't really get talked about that much now let's do bamboozled well bamboozled is getting talked about a little bit more lately, it is I now think. yes um, because it literally looks like a reflection of what's going on now you know uh bamboozled i think it looks most like a reflection of like 
maybe kind of what was happening in the mid 2000s Mm -hmm. that whole wave of post political correct comedy like South Park and Borat yeah but it all it's almost a reflection again of like what's happening now on stuff like Twitter or social media of people being like oh I'm saying these bad things because I'm being ironic or it's a joke when in reality it's just kind of perpetrating it or or just like knowing uh how easy it is P- put aside like the you know the 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 irony people yes. like the alt-right it's so easy for them <laughs> once they have permission yeah. to i'm not putting those ironic people on the side i'm bringing them right in <laughs> yeah yeah because don't you think oh, that... look i feel so seen is what i'm saying <laughs> justin <Yeah>, sorry <laughs> i didn't mean to to put you under a spotlight um is that like we didn't even talk about what bamboozled it is yeah uh so uh it stars damon wayans Mm -hmm. in a career defining performance as isn't his name pierre delacroix exactly that (laughs) where he he plays a a black uh tv executive who all of his ideas for tv shows get turned down by the racist gatekeeper uh not well you know racist he uh the gatekeeper is played by michael rapaport uh basically playing himself i think (laughs) Ignorant, racist. Kind of a jive-talking character. uh, Inspired perhaps a little bit by Quentin Tarantino. Mm. And in fact, there is a line in the movie when Michael Rappaport says, uh, Tarantino is right, you know, Spike Lee is wrong, the N-word's just a word. Mm -hmm. And so... Pierre Delacroix, as he tries to um, correct people throughout the movie, who, we should point out, Damon Wayne's has the craziest accent ever put to film in this movie on purpose. He speaks in an absurd white accent. And Mm. because he's the main character in the film, like you spend so much time listening to like your ability to appreciate bamboozled is directly proportional to your ability to deal with Damon Wayans doing this accent. Uh, I love it so much. Yeah, Um, I love it too. (laughs) So Damon Wayans decides to, in the classic, the producer style, make a show so offensive that it will force the uh, studio to fire him and he can go get work somewhere else. So he engineers this show, which will recreate the minstrel shows, which, if you don't know what they are, I don't know why. It's, it's blackface. Yeah, it's blackface. Singing and dancing variety show, really offensive. But the gimmick for this new millennium version of it is Damon Wayans is going to take black people and put them in blackface. Now, as they say in the movie, this is actually not something that's new. It's something that black entertainers had to do to Mm. be able to be accepted back in the day when minstrel shows would be taking place. There were some people when this movie came out who felt that the satire didn't work because blackface had just become too toxic that they couldn't quite imagine it. I could easily imagine something like this. So could I. <laughs> yes. Because, you know, because it's black people, you know, putting blackface on like that, that gives you permission mm-hmm. to laugh at it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like it's ironic. So it's OK. If right. they're in on the joke, then we can be in on the joke as well. And so this movie, of course, has that memorable scene where the whole audience, you know, puts on blackface. Mm-hmm. And there's that one Sicilian guy who's. Yeah. And this is a film that is shot on mini DV, the entire picture. This idea of blackface is rooted in like the past, right? When Mm -hmm. you think of the blackface, you think of, oh, well, you know, that doesn't really exist anymore. Like we see old black and white movies of that or also modern day, like Hollywood pictures. Or, you know, just like Ted Danson going to the Oscars. (laughs) Or, you know, just like frat guys at at parties. But by putting it under the kind of sheen of mini DV, it like 
grounds it in the now. Like, look at this. Like, this is technology that has been created only a few years ago, and blackface is on it, and people are enjoying it. Yeah. This movie also comes out of a somewhat specific context of, like, homeboys from outer space being on TV or just this perception that like you couldn't have a show on TV anymore that was like a positive depiction of black people. Like this movie, what it does in the best Spike Lee fashion, it just sounds like a joke like the producers or I don't know, Desta Smoochie or something like that. But Spike Lee in two hours and 15 minutes turns the tables on, like, the laughter of the movie until it's as grim as it possibly could be mm-hmm. without ever losing those absurd stylistic touches, even mm-hmm. up until, like, the last frame. Well, the, as stylistically, the movie is just, like, a full frontal assault. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's ever made a movie that's quite this over-the-top in, in every way. Like, it has you know, weird off-the-wall Hells-a-Poppin-style gags, like there's a, a Tommy Hilfiger commercial parody. There's a whole scene that parodies Ving Rhames at the Golden Globes. To, speaking of topical references, because when Ving Rhames won a Golden Globe one year around this time, he like, look it up on YouTube, it's worth watching, he gave his award to Jack Lemmon really? on stage, who was also nominated in the category. <laughs> and of course, it was just a baffling moment, and Jack Lemmon, you know, was pretty baffled. <laughs> this is particularly funny because Damon Wayans gives it to Matthew Modine, yeah. the star of Cutthroat Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he confuses him with someone else. <laughs> yeah, he confuses him with uh, Matt Dillon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, perfect stuff. But again, like this Damon Wayans character, at first you're supposed to be on his side and be like, oh yeah, he's sticking it to the man. But as it goes along, as he says himself, he's like, listen, I got a mortgage to pay. Mm-hmm. Like, I got to do these things. This idea of like, oh, I'm being ironic and I'm deconstructing it. Once it becomes successful, while he's horrified at it, he's like, ah, you know, I'll still play their game and still keep putting this out. And it's okay because I'm aware of it. Right. And it also raises a question that often runs through Spike Lee's movies, including She Hate Me and Black Klansmen of like, Like, to what extent can a black person thrive in a fundamentally white system? White racist system. White (laughs) racist system. Like, can you turn it around from the inside? You know, can you be be honest inside it? And like a lot of Spike Lee films, bamboozled like these big racist variety set pieces. It's not just the idea of them. It's he forces the audience to sit and watch it for like 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. He's just like, just soak it in. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not just giving you the idea that they're doing this. I'm giving you all of it. Like, you're going to see the entire, like, variety show. And right then, of course, he ends it with, like, ten minutes of just mm-hmm. montage of old racist cartoons. Yep, stuff that, you know, you can find on the budget video of cartoons. Yeah, that stuff that kids are watching today. And that nobody raises an, an eyebrow about. <laughs> so, we decided to also watch a film that nobody talks about when it comes to Spike Lee, She Hate Me. Or when it's talked about, it's talked about as maybe his worst movie. Or, I mean, I think Miracle at St. Anna probably probably came and took that crown away, but... I think the sweet blood of Jesus maybe gets a bit <laughs> right. of front for its Listen, money. we're not here to bury Spike Lee. <laughs> yeah. So, She Hate Me, starring Anthony Mackie, a long way from becoming the Falcon on the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe, plays a young vice president of a pharmaceutical company that, right from the get-go in the movie, something is amiss because a good friend of his who works at the company commits suicide. And he quickly discovers that the company, which is run by the most evil white guy alive, Woody Harrelson, <laughs> has been doing what big giant pharmaceutical companies do, which is fudge the numbers and just kind of try to sweep things under the rug. So he decides to blow a whistle on them. 
and this gets him fired. And obviously, the logical extension to that story is he starts impregnating gay women. Yeah, so that he can uh, <laughs> get enough money to sustain I don't know. his lifestyle. Yes. And and how does he impregnate these gay women, you may ask? Uh, well, the old fashioned way, mm-hmm. uh, he has sex with them one after another, you know, 15 of them in a night, bringing them all to just powerful orgasms <laughs> and then it, and and as he's doing that it cuts to uh animation of anthony mackie's sperm with his little face on all of them so uh, i can only imagine that spike lee paid for this because he uses it 30 times in this movie <laughs> like does it just get funnier every time yeah. or this is a movie as you may have known from that description that like what are these two stories doing together? Well, I guess um Spike Lee is interested in the black male in capitalism, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's in a uh corporate a, setting or whether it's, you know, his body being, you know, used as a commodity as uh, is literally said in the film, now you know how it feels to be a sexual object. Right. So the movie is perhaps uh, woke on issues of class and race uh less so on sexuality and gender so spike lee's uh this is sounding real mean to say this is chasing amy if you will uh he's i think always had maybe a bit of a gender problem in a lot of his movies um i don't think that's too controversial to say i mean he has apologized for the rape scene and she's gotta have it he has yes Um, he's a director that just goes all in and sometimes the stories that he wants to tell it's kind of like, I don't know if this is your story to tell, Spike. Like, he's very emotionally invested in this experience that these gay women have and what it means to be in a relationship or the difficulties they have going through and making a family. But he's also portraying them in very goofy ways to get laughs. And that, you know, I'm all for Spike Lee doing like crazy tonal stuff. But when representation, I don't know, in this way barely exists in the mainstream frame, Mm -hmm. like it's weird to see and kind of off-putting these things kind of knock their heads together. But the movie is poly-positive, so if you're into that, uh, you know, (laughs) go for it. Whatever. I mean, to say it's Spike Lee's worst movie is like... I don't know. Like, well, I, I, I enjoyed watching it. it. It's certainly very watchable. Um, it's the kind of movie where, like, maybe half of it is rings very true. Yes. And then half of it is, like, obviously w- weirdly wrongheaded, but it's so wrongheaded that you look at it and you think, well, surely he knows this is wrongheaded. Surely mm-hmm. there's some point being made here. Uh, in Roger Ebert's review, he gave it three stars, and he made a somewhat tortured case for the movie as being kind of about the absurd stereotypes it presents yeah um so so like like you know the classic i meant to do that defense like Mm -hmm. it's it's all satire like in addition to what we said the movie has just an absurd number of subplots Uh, (laughs) there's like a crime subplot yeah john turturro plays the father of one of these gay women monica bellucci he's like barely five years older than her in real life but (laughs) i was so confused when this crime subplot was introduced. He play, yeah, he plays a mafioso. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a, a subplot with uh, Jim Brown as Anthony Mackie's father with diabetes. It, it's barely addressed. It comes up, they touch on it a little bit, and then it's dropped by the end of the film. There there are other subplots, and just tonally it goes from just like... It's very know. interested in the guy who was a security guard during the Watergate scandal, and keeps going back to this idea of the main character in She Hate Me, he's that guy. Like, he 
discovered this, but he will be destroyed by it. Yeah, like whistleblowers are mm-hmm. always the ones who end up paying for these crimes. All the other people in Watergate went on to have very comfortable careers, but the security guard who found them was fired. Yeah. Or, you know, even, you know, years later, who's the person who ended up bearing any responsibility for the Iraq war? Well, it was Chelsea Manning. Yeah. Like, like the, this is this is perpetual. So on that level, I like this story element, but both of them mixing together. I'm like, ah. Well, it's like, I guess he's trying to, he's trying to shock you. He's trying to outrage you. He's trying to reach you on some like very primal level. And by, and he's doing it partly by shifting so radically between tones. Like there's really goofy comedy. There's very soapy melodrama. There's, you know, absurd, like almost like sketch comedy satire in the film. It has a hilarious happy ending where you're like, huh? Like when you're watching this movie and the story is Anthony Mackie, Uh, impregnating all these gay women you're like well how will this be dealt with like how will his life go on and spoiler warning it's ah, he'll just stay friends with them i guess and i think if the movie has a failing it's that you know even though it's obviously a crazy out there experiment putting all these clashing elements together i watch it and i think huh that's really weird that all those clashing elements are together they really don't work together (laughs) yep (laughs) And, and you know, how successful is that, really, if that's what I'm left with? Well, right? he was able to do it, and it's on screen, and you're watching it, so is that a victory in in of itself? I mean, it's pure Spike Lee. And this is a movie that came two years after The 25th Hour, another one of Spike Lee's, like, mainstream hits. Yeah. So it's almost as if he's reacting to The 25th Hour, which was, like, an adaptation of a very well-received book, which is about post-2011. And it's about white people as well. Yes. And... You know, uh, you'll notice that critics... They like the white people Spike Lee movies. Well, not just critics. Like, lots of people like... The white people. You can kind of sense, like, just a sigh of relief when people can say, oh, well, the white people are actually good in this Spike Lee movie. Mm -hmm. Like, you can see it with Black Klansmen a little bit, frankly. Which is crazy. Haven't you sensed that? Yes, I have. And again, like, there's so many good white people movies out there. Like, why do they have to be good in Spike Lee movies? Well, it's because Spike Lee is such an uncompromising public figure Mm. in so many ways. Like, some people, some white people find him very hectoring. And I think they they find it a relief when a movie of his comes along that has nice white people. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Because I've brought up Spike Lee to a few people and they've gone like, ugh, yeah, man, why is he so, like, angry all the time? And it's like, he's got fucking well he, he, he should be angry yeah, yeah he should be angry and the fact that that anger has not like diminished at all <laughs> is great i think because yeah. he's still making those movies even though it's getting harder and harder to do so because like something like red hook summer which was it kind of heralded before it came out as a return to form that like oh he's going back to Brooklyn Mm -hmm. and he's actually going to have his character from Do the Right Thing appear in it and the lead from She's Gotta Have It is in it as well Mm -hmm. but then he gives you this image that's kind of ugly with non-actors at the kids in the main lead and it's also not what people wanted. They want something comforting. They want Do the Right Thing and you know Red Hook Summer was raked over the coals when it came out and I can understand why people did that but I love the thing that people hate the most about it. The the crazy twist. Yeah, so there's a crazy twist. Actually, I think what people hate the most is some of the acting. But. Yes, I mean, yeah, it's very rough. But they hate that twist. No one can mention the movie without going like, what the heck happened? And I think that like a lot of the reviews felt the twist was a betrayal. Yeah. And that's exactly what Spike Lee was doing, which is he's like, look, 
these are difficult figures, but I'm going to get you to like them mm. over an hour and a half. Mm. And by the time you like them as much as you're going to like them, I'm going to say, well, you didn't think about these people, like what they could have done, like these people that you like and are endearing. Look at these evil thing that they did in their life. Mm -hmm. And then the movie never even like deals with it or solves it. It's like, this is what it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, Red Hook Summer is great for that. But then again, those stylistic things, people don't like it. Well, I think uh, Spike Lee is running into some of the same troubles that a lot of, you know, independent mid-budget auteurs of his ilk often face. Uh, the money just isn't there for the sorts of movies that he wants to make anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he wants to make a modern day adaptation of Lysistrata set in Chicago. Why won't people just give him the money to do that? <laughs> I mean, he's lucky that he got in there at Amazon, you know, during the gold rush. Mm-hmm. Back when, you know, Crisis in Six Scenes was getting greenlit <laughs> oh, for $80 million. <laughs> million. Yeah. That's insane to me. (laughs) But, you know, hopefully Black Klansman, I don't think it did, like, the big business that any studio would hope, but it did business. Yeah. And it did get talked about a lot. So I think that his next movie, which I am 100% certain will be insane and that people are going to find very difficult, he'll get the money to be able to make it. I hope so. So... And I'm always always interested in what he's up to. Yeah, me too. I can't say I find all of them successful. No. uh, But even the unsuccessful ones... He's still making stuff like She's Gotta Have It. He did the TV series, which he directed most of for Netflix, and he did the first season, and he's still doing the, t- the second season. So just like the commercials and the music video he does, he has no problems going, yeah, yeah I'll work for Netflix, and I can do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So we've still got Spike Lee. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, no letters this week. I guess our asylum episode just bowled people over so much <laughs> that they're like, uh, they said everything there is to say about the asylum. Did we get any any letters from the asylum? Let me check. No. No acknowledgement at no all. No like, no retweet, no nothing. I guess I was pretty down on them. Yeah, you were really down on them <laughs> as I struggled to like shed some kind of other perspective that, ah, uh, they're you, terrible. Frankly, you didn't like them that much either. <laughs> listen, I want them to contact me. Maybe they're like, well, listen to the next episode after this one. See if they bring us up again. Something I admire about you is your eagerness to like movies. I do. Um, even their movies. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about this a little while ago, which is like, you know, people always say, oh, it's always better to like a movie than dislike a movie. That's not true for everybody. Some people would love to have a shitty movie just so they can have a good laugh. But not me. I want to like it. I want people to do well. But most of the time, in the case of Asylum, I'm just left sad, disappointed, and without any Twitter mentions or retweets. Too bad. Uh, Again, that's Podcast at gmail.com. Mr. Asylum. On the Patreon this week, uh, we discuss Black Klansman, the 1966 Ted V. Michaels movie. (laughs) Woo! And we also talked about Spike Lee's Black Klansman a little bit. Sure. We did both of them into one amazing package. By the way, we hit our Patreon goal, so pretty soon we're going to be doing that exclusive uh, commentary for an important film for both of us. Yes. An important film in our friendship, I think. Uh, Absolutely. I think the first time you said that we were ever in the same room together. We were probably in the same room other times. In fact, I know we were in the same room other times, but the first time that we spoke. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that'll be dropping soon, as, as soon as me and Will can find a free moment, yeah. uh, which will be difficult when TIFF starts, because, man, I got myself an industry pass. Oh, man. <laughs> so uh, keep, I, I don't know, your ear to the grindstone for all the hot reviews of movies like 
I don't know, Damien Chazelle's first man. One of the popular movies coming out. Yeah, um, I don't know. <laughs> like, Death of a President. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, Fahrenheit uh, 11.9. Yeah. <laughs> and as per usual, you can become a Patreon subscriber by giving us $5 a month and you get four episodes and our like 75 plus episode back catalog. And I'd like to thank the important Cinema Club listeners that came up to me during the screening of Impossible Horror to say, hey, I'm a listener. Then afterwards coming and seeing me and say, yes, I enjoyed that film. So what are we doing next week, Will? We'll be looking at the cinema of Abbas Kiarostami. Yes, the director of Close Up, Taste of Cherry. Porky's the Revenge. Uh, yeah, that are just, you know, life-changing. RoboCop 2. <laughs> yeah, Abbas is RoboCop 2. So thanks for joining us. And until next week, my name is Justin DeGlue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin, you just got back from the Big Apple, mm-hmm. the city that never sleeps. Yep. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Uh, what did you do? I went to New York City to the Film Society of Lincoln Center to show my feature film, Impossible Horror. And the Film Society of Lincoln Center is a very nice place that I had actually never visited before. And the programmers at the Scary Movies Festival were very nice. And the audience was very well behaved and respectful. Unlike somewhere else I visited in New York. Ooh. Was it the Film Forum? Was it the Metrograph? Or was it... The MoMA. Now, the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art. Everybody knows what that is. Mm -hmm. Did people know that they actually have a film screening series that they do? They show retrospectives, or in this case, I was very excited because Martin Scorsese was showing his favorite Republic pictures. We've talked about them before in our Poverty Row episode. They were mostly a Western studio and people like William Whitney worked for them, just cranking out Westerns. And uh, good old Marty picked a bunch of them that have kind of fallen by the wayside. They restored them and they were showing them in the theater. And it was free if you just bought an attendance to the Museum of Modern Art itself, which I had never visited ever in my life. Mm. But... I'm bringing this up not just because I want to show off that, like, man, I saw a new movie. It was because it was the worst audience that (gasps) I've ever been in. Oh, no. Now, we've probably talked about bad movie audiences before, right? That's, yeah. It happens. That's the the stuff the podcasts are made of. Yeah, it's kind of like the airplane, right? Like, I can't believe I got in the airplane. I have never been in a theater where more people have talked pulled out their phones or just been like belligerent why is that so the moma the theater like i said you buy a ticket you can go see a movie so it was a mixture of at this four o'clock seemingly sold out screening of tourists who wandered in being like oh you know what what's playing and realizing they have to watch like a black and white noir melodrama the person in front of me sunk into her seat till i couldn't see her head anymore (laughs) and the elderly now When most people think about, like, people creating trouble in a movie theater, they think about the young millennials taking out their phones, chit-chatting like it's their living room. But we know who the real enemy is. Oh, it's absolutely the elderly. (laughs) If you go anywhere where the elderly congregate, whether it be a symphony or an opera or anything like that, a cell phone will always go off. A cell phone, the same ringtone, went off three times during this movie yeah and finally someone came in tapped the woman on the shoulder who was behind me and said i'm sorry ma'am you're we've warned you like you have to leave and she was so angry oh i bet she was like swearing and i'm walking here (laughs) i'm walking here i'm in new york (laughs) and i was like 
but your cell phone went off three times. Unbelievable. Like, what else is there to do? Mm. Like, I'm one that I will politely tap people on the shoulder and say, listen, please turn off your phone. Most people are so mortified by that because they think yeah. that they live in their own bubble and like, oh, I'm, I'm holding it close to my chest so no one will see it. People are naturally afraid of authority and they yeah. don't like being in trouble. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they calm down, but not the elderly. Oh. <laughs> like, they are so hell-bent on, I'm in my spot, I earn this, and I can do whatever I want. Now, I understand that maybe they need to explain the plot to each other as it goes along. Yeah. But please, not at the top of your voice. Like, the movie's playing in front of us. At one point, someone was whispering so loud that, like, everyone in the cinema could hear it, and a guy went, please stop it! And then another guy yelled at the guy who yelled, shut up! (laughs) Like... Well, I'm it's sorry. like a vicious circle. Sorry you had a bad experience. Never going back to New York. Well, I, <laughs> I've been looking at that MoMA Republic Pictures retrospective longingly from, yeah. you know, hundreds of miles away. Last time I was in New York, I went to the MoMA and had a great time. Oh, really? What'd you see? I I saw, like, a perfect double feature. I saw Plan 9 from Outer Space on 35mm. Wow. 35mm, Justin. When was that? Uh, last January. Okay. And then following that, the new restoration of Police Story. Wow. What an afternoon. What an a- So... Was it filled with the elderly? Plan 9 from Outer Space, I would not say that it was filled. I'm surprised it, it wasn't like a bunch of cat callers and like MST3Kers who seem to be the funniest person in the room. No, I would say it was like, you know, some boomers in there okay. um, who were polite. And then uh, Police Story, what very well-behaved yeah, audience. A raucous audience, you would say. And you know what? I don't want to paint the over 60 baby boomers with the broadest of brushes, but just most of them. They're bad people. They, yeah. you know, they... Destroyed the world. They voted for Trump. Yep. All these floods and heat waves. Mostly their fault, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and their cell phones go off in the movie theater. <laughs> Why can't they turn them off? 